Hello and welcome to Naked Genetics, the show which seeks to find out just what is going on in our genes. I'm Will Tingle and this episode... I can just think of the number of appointments with worried parents who want to know what's been picked up on this test, what are the implications for my child, what can I do? What are the implications for increasing the number of genetic diseases tested for at birth? And then we take a look at how ageing affects our genes and... The Bat with a Huge Penis, another delightful entry in Quirks of Evolution. First up this week, let's look again at a couple of the genetic studies currently making waves and what might be some of the deeper questions being asked by geneticists. It's time to venture back down into Cambridge and link up with my genetics gurus, Shivani Shukla and Aylwin Scally. First of all, thank you both for uh, allowing me back. <laughs> you weren't scared off in the first instance too much. It's lovely to be back and talking about genetics with you. Let's talk about first up. An article published in The Lancet has called for a potential reassessment of the UK's newborn screening programme, a service which takes a blood sample of a newborn to test for genetic diseases to determine if it should be updated to test for more genetic diseases. Shivani, I touched on it just then, but can you talk us through what the current screening programme involves and what it looks like? The current screening programme involves pricking the heel of a newborn baby ideally five days old, and then testing that for nine different genetic diseases. And I thought it'd be interesting for listeners to know which genetic diseases they are. So those nine diseases are sickle cell anemia, cystic fibrosis, congenital hypothyroidism, and six different metabolic diseases. We've got nine at the moment. Do we know how many they're proposing we go up to? Yes, so the estimates are between 200 to 400 different diseases. And the US is currently at 63. So it'll be interesting to see what different countries do with this information. And it might completely change. By testing for these and knowing that they may appear earlier, you can start to treat them earlier? Is that the idea? In a way, yes. Because for things like cystic fibrosis, sickle cell anemia... They're very well-studied diseases and there's quite a clear course of kind of prognosis. This is what a lifespan can look like. This is what doctors here in the UK can do for you. So it's useful to know earlier on so you can manage the disease better. But for things like the more niche genetic diseases where maybe there's only a couple of children in the UK who are affected by it, I guess that is useful to know but then... Is it useful to include that in a massive screening programme and every parent needs to know? I don't know. That's where the debate comes in. Mm. And then it comes down to screening in lots of ways. Like if you have a relative who has Huntington's, some people would question, should I be screened for Huntington's? And if I do, what do I do with that information? So it's all the sort of question that we are asking with genetic screening and testing becoming more readily available. This is becoming an increasingly almost ethical side of genetics in that would you want to know and if you're performing this test on a newborn they may grow up and decide that they wouldn't have wanted to know and where do you draw the line ethically there is that kind of the the balance you need to strike with this sort of study there's so many ethics when it comes to it and what do you do with all that data and newborns can't consent they can't refuse so yeah there's a lot to think about i think for this the implications of the study If we are going from nine to maybe 400, that's just so many more, from a human side of things, many more things to worry about almost. That's very true. And also 
you have to consider how accurate whole genome sequencing is. And actually, the rate of false negatives is higher in whole genome sequencing because you're picking up a lot of variations. But as we discussed in the last episode, an association is not a causal relationship. So it's complicated. Mm. Could this lead to an increase in clinical pressure with people being far more aware that they might have diseases, more coming in, more staff are needed to treat these sorts of things? Definitely, without a doubt, because the follow-up from this, if it becomes a national screening programme, would be immense. And I can just think of the number of appointments with worried parents who want to know what's been picked up on this test, what are the implications for my child, what can I do? which is understandable, but then it's, it comes back to the question of what can the healthcare service even do about certain diseases? So one needs to think about, can the NHS handle that, basically? It'll be very interesting to see what this study concludes, I think. The other context to this is that there's a lot of potential money to be made around the world from for providing these services. So there's a huge sort of health economic aspect to this too. So one has to bear that in mind as one of the reasons that people are kind of, one of the reasons that certain companies are keen to, to, to get involved in this. Think of diseases like dementia. Mm. Yeah. Other examples as, as well as Huntington's disease as uh, later in life affect increasing numbers of people as they, as they get older. And that's also something that we can't really do very much about. I mean, that's for me, that's the real distinction between a lot of these diseases that if it's a disease that we currently can't treat that's when people say well maybe I'd rather not know but there are some diseases where actually early diagnosis means there are preventative treatments that can be changed and I think that was the original reason for the heel prick test was it was a set of dietary changes that could be made and things that things like that then I think there's an unambiguous good that comes from doing it. It seems extraordinary to me that you could be presented with a list of 400 potential genetic diseases. And maybe there are 20 of them that you have markers for, and you worry about that your whole life, and then you end up being hit by a car. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was all meaningless. Absolutely. So, <laughs> on that note, we shall move then from the beginning of life to the end of life. We come to a study from the University of Michigan, published in Science Advances, which concluded that genetic mutations that promote reproduction tend to shorten human lifespan. Do we know which mutations promote reproduction when they talk about this? Like with any trait or characteristic of people, we can go and look for genetic factors, you know, differences in the genome, in people's genomes that are correlated with an increase or decrease in a particular trait. And reproductive success is an example of such a trait. So you can look in a large number of people, hundreds of thousands, for example, where they looked at reproductive success as measured say by the number of children that someone had over the course of their lifetime and looked at correlations between that and genetic differences. The actual causes and how those variants might specifically cause you to have more children or influence the number of children that you have, that's much harder to get. It's one thing to be able to say these genotypes may cause a shortened lifespan but it must be a complete other kettle of fish to turn that into a phenotype that we could observe. I mean, the, the context for all this actually is quite interesting because you might assume that, that ageing, for example, is something that we understand. And you might even, in fact, assume that it's something that's inevitable. Certainly it's true that everybody dies, but it's not clear that ageing is inevitable. And by ageing, I mean degradation and falling apart that happens to us all in the way our bodies break down. That may not be um, necessary. It's possible that we could kind of live like the elves in Lord of the Rings. We could be immortal. <laughs> until you know we have a car accident or somebody kills us 
First of all, some people seem to age more slowly than others, so there is some variation even within humans, and then some animals live much, much longer than others. Some live hundreds of years. And if you think from an evolutionary perspective, it doesn't really make sense. Like, the longer you live, the more chance you have to have children, more chance your genes have to reproduce. Surely there's a strong evolutionary pressure to just keep going and to, and to, and to not die other than by accident. To my layman brain, I read this as... As callous as it sounds to ignore a human's thoughts, feelings and ambitions, but if you reproduce early, that's kind of you done in terms of passing on your genetics and kind of serving your purpose. Well, you can keep reproducing. I mean, that would, in fact, that's really the difference. That if you reproduce early and reproduce often, um, like voting, some people say, then you will ultimately have more success than someone who reproduces late or just who stops reproducing has fewer children. There is nevertheless a greater sort of fitness advantage from starting early and from reproducing early. And that relative difference means there's a sort of an increased selection on genes that give you increased reproduction earlier in your life and relatively less for reproducing later in your life. And in selection, natural selection is, is ruthlessly efficient and anything that's slightly less favourable than, than another thing will essentially be kind of wiped out as a trait you could have offspring as late as you like, but if you're not fit enough to keep them alive, then is that kind of an evolutionary disadvantage? If you have offspring later in life, the chances of being able to do that are just going to be a little bit less because there is always the chance that you might accidentally die. I mean, if you think about it, the world is a dangerous place, and so death is going to be a thing, no matter how long we live, and even if we supposedly were immortal. Once you sort of relax the kind of strength of selection on a particular trait, and for example, you know, old age or reproduction, then what happens is that natural selection allows things to kind of come in like mutations that, that basically mess up the mechanisms and you know, just accumulate sort of mutations which give rise to diseases later in life. So things like Huntington's disease, for example. Can I just add, it's quite interesting in terms of Huntington's, there's a phenomenon called anticipation, which is that if someone gets Huntington's because it's in their genes at a certain age, the amount of repeats, because it's a trinucleotide repeat, kind of accumulate through generations, which means as every generation passes, people will be getting the Huntington's earlier and earlier, which is obviously detrimental and quite bad. But because I suppose it doesn't affect their reproductive success earlier in life, it keeps being selected. And I was going to ask complete blue sky thinking here. I suspect the answer to this is no. But if we know this information, if we know that certain genes kind of shorten our lifespan if they're based on reproduction, is there a gross sounding money man looking at this, rubbing their hands, going that there could be some kind of gene therapy that we look at this and we could potentially allow people to live longer? There are people conducting research into that, uh, into sort of uh, extending lifespan and delaying senescence. Another approach we could do, which would be if we weren't so worried about our own personal life since we just wanted to wait, wanted to let um, natural selection do its thing, we could be just extend reproductive life and make just make the world a bit safer for ourselves so that we're less likely to die due to car accidents and other problems. Those processes eventually will then tip the balance in favour of longer life reproduction rather than getting your kids out as quickly as possible before something bad happens, which is currently what natural selection is aiming to do, it seems. Mm. Your take-home message is we all really need to improve our road infrastructure, really, to, in order to live longer, more than anything else here. I'm glad that is the message. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much to Shivani Shukla and Aylwin Scally. Always a pleasure. Music in the programme is sponsored by Epidemic Sound. 
Perfect music for audio and video productions. You're listening to Naked Genetics, the programme that delves into genes and the geniuses that study them. Still to come, the mating ritual of a very well-endowed bat. But first, in the news, we talked about how certain genetic mutations that promote reproduction might shorten human lifespan. So let's stay close to that topic. As the year winds down and some of us come together for the festive season and we turn our faces towards 2024, another year on this earth, I, like many other, have only one thought in my mind. Growing old and dying. Because now I, age 27, at the end of my life, must face my own mortality. But I've always believed that you may fear something simply because you don't understand it. So let's try to do that. Since our genes are the cookbook for our body, surely they have no small part to play in the process of ageing. The mysteries behind what causes ageing are still very much up for debate, but a recent study has hinted that ageing might be driven by an imbalance in your genes. Let me explain. Different genes code for different things, and as a result, some are shorter and some are longer. Every cell in your body has to equalise the expression of long and short genes in case they become imbalanced. Usually, having imbalanced genes means it's time to buy a belt. But in this case, it might be a driving mechanism behind ageing. Here to explain is lead author on this particular study from Northwestern University, Thomas Stöger. Compared to younger cells, genes change their activity in a very particular way. There are genes that become more active relative to other genes and other genes that become less active compared to other genes. So different genes carry out different functions in our body. Depending on the function that they carry out, some genes are shorter and some are longer because the components that they encode also need to be bigger. And we found that basically genes that are shorter tend to become upregulated relative to other genes and genes that are longer tend to be downregulated. So as we age, the balance in our cells shift towards favoring the use of shorter genes. But as I said, length of a gene does not necessarily equate to its complexity. Generally, some of the short ones can also be complex and some of the longer ones can also be complex. It really seems to be primarily the length alone. So how could this accelerate aging? Well, have you ever been moved to a different seat in an aeroplane so that it had better weight distribution? If everyone sat on one side, it would require more fuel to keep the aeroplane stable and airborne. To quote a senior author on this study, Louis Amaral, small changes in genes do not seem like a big deal, but these subtle changes are bearing down on you, requiring more effort. So when we mapped this back to humans, we found that genes that are short, so those that tend to become more relatively even more active during aging. Also, preferentially encode for genes that, when they are active, actually shorten lifespans. And genes that are long, basically, enrich for genes that would extend lifespan. So there seems to be some really surprising organization of the genome according to size and effect on lifespan. So why might the body be doing this? Well, Thomas has a very interesting theory about what becomes more prevalent as we get older. Some of the genes that are short are genes that are involved in fighting pathogens. So basically, when there's like something harmful in our environment, there's certain genes that need to be active to fight those. And genes that are shorter, it's quicker to activate those than genes that are longer. So there could be like a short-term benefit under some circumstances, but a long-term disadvantage if these genes are permanently active. Perhaps we are then having to fight disease harder as we get older, creating a vicious cycle that requires shorter genes, with that imbalance only accelerating the process of ageing. 
But now that we've identified a potential mechanism, could this have practical applications in gene therapies based around aging? This phenomenon that we have found has also been described outside of aging. And outside of aging, people notice that this can happen when that enzyme that reads genes and activates information in there. And there is the same phenomenon also when it runs too fast, but also too slow. So it might indicate that therapies on aging might be most effective if they target an intermediate level of activity. Don't try to push things into one extreme or another, but maintaining intermediate leverages would be a conceptual departure from many existing strategies to extend lifespan. Thomas Stöger, thank you very much. So in this program so far, we've looked at what genes do to aging, but let's flip that on its head now and ask what aging does to genes. And is there anything we can do ourselves to slow that process? I spoke to the University of Exeter's Luke Pilling. So DNA is very stable itself, but it undergoes a lot of insults as we go through our lives, you know, environmental and part of the metabolism even in our bodies. So they can pick up damage as we go. And so some of these all manifest as actual breakages of the DNA, but that is quite uncommon. But what um, is sort of most interesting, I think, from an aging perspective, are, are where the damage occurs to the DNA and this results in a mutation, a change to the genetic sequence. And that can change how the gene or the protein is expressed and the, change the function of the cell. And as our cells and tissues, as we go through our lives, you know, there's more of these mutations, we call these somatic mutations, as opposed to mutations that we inherit from our parents. These somatic mutations build up in our different tissues, and that can quite profoundly impact the cell's ability to function, the tissue's ability to function, and can even result in cancer. Do we know how these mutations occur? Do we know what drives them? So there's all sorts of things. So for example, the cells in your skin are exposed to a lot of UV radiation from the sun, and that can cause damage to the DNA and result in these somatic mutations, as I was mentioning earlier. There's part of the metabolism and it goes on in the cells can produce what are called reactive oxygen species, and these can damage the DNA. And some of it's just chance, you know, they might, whilst they're replicating, you know, cells are dividing, for example, there might be errors introduced. We've got a lot of DNA repair mechanisms that are very good at correcting these errors when they're spotted, but inevitably some are passed on to the next generation of cells in our body as they divide. So correct me if I'm wrong here, aging itself isn't necessarily what causes the damage. It's just the amount of time increases the chances that you encounter something that damages you. Yeah, I think that's a good way to think about it. Um, we do know as well, though, that people age at different rates. And so this is really interesting concept called biological age that we uh, look at in some of the work that we're doing, where two individuals of the same chronological age, you know, the number of times you've been around the sun, might have a different biological age. So someone might be more ill, for example, more frail compared to someone else who's still quite fit and healthy. And what we're very interested in our work is how or why, you know, what results in people reaching older age free of disease and free of frailty. A related term is health span. We do a lot of work looking at how long people live. And sometimes people think that we, we want to make people live forever. Ever. But really what we're interested in is the person's health span, the proportion of their lives that they live free of disease. And we know that there are genetic variants, inherited genetic variants in people that promote health span. So I'm very interested in what drives these differences in aging rates in different people. 
Is that all that happens to DNA as we grow older, though? Because if DNA is this thing that almost endlessly replicates, surely that has an effect on the DNA itself? Yeah, so telomeres are these these bits on the ends of the chromosomes that protect the DNA during cell division. And because the, the process isn't perfect as the, as the chromosomes are replicated, and a bit is lost on the end each time. And so these telomeres are just repetitive sequences of DNA that essentially get shorter and shorter as the cells divide, unless an enzyme is expressed or telomerase to lengthen them again. And in most cells in our body, we don't express telomerase because this is actually a protection so that cells um, don't divide endlessly. But interestingly, from some of the work we've done on, on telomere length, although yes, it's true that people predisposed to having uh, shorter telomeres are protected from cancer, it seems that they're at higher risk of other non-cancer chronic diseases, things like cardiovascular disease. And this might be because people with shorter telomeres, their cells undergo fewer rounds of division before uh, ceasing to divide, stopping when you know when the telomeres get too short, and they're to this state called senescence. There's a lot of work going on cellular senescence in in the field of aging and geroscience to try and understand how these cells that are still in your tissues but they're no longer dividing and they're not necessarily as functional, how they're impacting aging as we get older. And you've alluded to it throughout this entire piece, but the buildup of small errors and mutations in the DNA as we get older the errors that build up means it's probably not good news for the body. Absolutely, yes. The somatic mutations will definitely result in lower functioning cells. A lot of the work that I do tends to focus on the inherited variation and how this can push people towards different sort of phenotypes of aging. And there's a few different ways that we look at this. Some of these are thinking about biological age based on biomarkers. So we look at their cholesterol levels, for example, and the different cell counts in the blood the lymphocytes and neutrophils. Uh, but there's also phenotypic aging, their muscle function or their bone mineral density. There's a lot of ways that we can try and get a window on a person's biological age because it's actually very difficult to assess without some quite invasive biomarkers, as you can imagine, to actually look at the amount of senescence in the different tissues. So we try and use these sort of proxies and for uh, aging itself and think, yeah, like I say, about the inherited variation. So which genes are pushing people towards aging phenotypes? And does that tell us something about the biology and why some people are more likely to get disease and aging versus others? To end it on a slightly lighter note, as you said, it's far more about the experiences you have in the healthy parts of your life rather than just trying to live as long as possible. Absolutely. And there's a lot that people can do, actually, because the, the genes that we find that come out for biological aging and things like this are are genes that we know for cardiovascular disease and hypertension and you know a lot of things where people know about the risk factors for these already so people can overcome their inherited genetic predisposition to some of these outcomes by eating a healthy diet and not smoking and being active that has a massive impact on someone's health span in later life. Luke Pilling, so perhaps then it is far more important to have a life full of beauty, wonder and love than a life that is simply long. Okay, let's talk about bat penises. It's time for Quirks of Evolution, and I promise next time I won't talk about any animal genitalia, but for now, our focus must turn to a very well-endowed bat. The serotine bat is a fairly common species of Choroptera found everywhere in Eurasia, from England to China. And if you saw one at night, you might think, that's pretty big. 
but you'd have no idea how right you were. In fact, the male's organ is so big that it led researchers to wonder just how on earth it could possibly function in copulation. One of those people was the University of Lausanne's Nicolas Fazel. When it's flaccid already, it looks big, but actually we had uh, the chance to see it in erection and it was really surprising for us the, the, the size of it. It's, it's really large comparatively to the, the body size. It's also quite uh, wide and at the top of the, the penis, you have this heart shape, which is very strange because it doesn't look like something that will penetrate in anything. It's, it's doesn't doesn't look right. So if that's the case, then, if it doesn't look like it's going to fit anywhere useful, what is the bat using that for? For us, it was a, a bit of a mystery because we saw this big penis and we were thinking, OK, but there is no way it can use it as an intermittent organ. So we were thinking, OK, either it can use it having an erection after the the intromission and be locked inside a bit like you would find in the dogs or Maybe it doesn't have a penetration, but this was a bit uh, a bit unsure because it was never reported in any other mammal species. But actually, when we would have access to some uh, videos provided, then we could see that actually the bats is not penetrating the, the female, but it used this huge penis to actually move the tail membrane. So the female can use actually the tail membrane to protect her belly and her genitalia. And the male can then use this uh, big membrane to pass by this tail membrane and reach the vulva. So just so I've got this right, as you say, it's copulation without penetration. The bat's penis moves the, uh, the, the uh, membrane out of the way of the female's genitalia, deposits the sperm. Then what happens so that the, bat, the female can be fertilized? I would like to be able to answer you. The thing is that when you just see the, the, the videos, you don't see what happened actually inside. And this will be super interesting to, to see. But sadly, yeah, it's, it will involve killing the, the bats or, I don't know, using some special race that may not exist now in order to see what is really going inside. But so we don't have this possibility. But to some extent, I am not super surprised that uh, the, the sperm can find their way and that the females is also making the sperm moving through the genital tract. So I think we think too much that the female is very passive and, you know, she's just waiting for the motile sperm to go through and reach uh, dragging eggs on its way. But I think we quite forget that the females may have big mechanism to support or to decrease the capacity of the sperm to uh, access the, the fertilization site. So you don't need actually to put the sperm super far in order for the, the sperm to, to reach the eggs. And I think the best example is, for example, the, the birds. The birds, they don't have information. They don't have a penetration. Most of the birds, huh? you still have ducks and ostrich, but most of the birds don't have penetration and they succeed quite well. So for the moment... These bats and their enormous penises get to keep their secrets. Like in many aspects, uh, you spoke about uh, uh, longevity, you, we can speak about uh, immunity. So uh, bats are quite incredible because they are, remain quite uh, mysterious in many, many aspects. Nicola Fazel, and if you want to see for yourself, his paper is in the journal Current Biology.
And that's all we have time for this edition, but we'll be back next month where I promise to talk about something other than penises. But in the meantime, if there are any areas of genetics you'd like to hear featured on the show, do drop me a line at willt at nakedscientists.com. Thanks to Shivani, Aylwin, Luke, Thomas and Nicola, and thank you for listening. I'm Will Tingle, and until next time, goodbye. <laughs>